Does anybody have any uh, questions, thoughts, or comments? Yes, Tom? It's already on. Uh, Vinny's just controlling. Is he writing this based on some writings of masters earlier where master interpreted these things? Master did teach Patanjali, yes, and he gave classes on Patanjali. And I think he, the times that he was giving the classes on Patanjali was before Swamiji came to him. And there was um, some notes that well, no one is quite sure exactly who took those notes, but we had an, uh, a stack of notes that somebody took from his Patanjali classes, and Swamiji had that. But I think he did it more um, just from memory, intuition, and intuition. I mean, the, he's right here, he calls it the wisdom of Paramahansa Yogananda, whereas the, uh, the Gita, he says, explained by Yogananda as remembered by his disciple. Um, so in this case, he's just saying this is how Master interpreted it. I never heard him. I never heard him refer to. Master said this about that sutra, except that you know back in the late sixties, Swamiji wrote the fourteen steps to higher awareness, as he called it then. Now it's called Art and Science of Raja Yoga, and that was all about Patanjali. I mean, that was taken. That was just right through Patanjali. So. Swami, everything Swami knows, he learned from Master. He never studied anything else. So it was, it was always an integral part of Master's teachings, apparently, from looking at it that way. There's no manuscript of Master writing it like there was for the Gita and, and also for the Revelations. I don't think there's any uh, SRF magazine articles or anything like that where both the commentary on the Gita and in the Bible, Master wrote, published in the magazines, and then eventually they turned all that into a book, or they sent from some there. But the Patanjali was just this underground set of um, somebody's personal notes. Whose? We weren't, nobody was ever sure, which is one of the reasons we, we never published them. But also we never published them because Swami felt they needed too much editing. He felt they didn't represent Master in a clear enough light, so he didn't want them to be widely available. So he solved the problem by doing this. Yes? One San Diego Temple elders had a uh, one remin- San Diego Temple elders elders uh-huh. uh, had a YouTube video reminiscing about the times that Master came down to give the Patanjali classes in San Diego, and Diamata took the notes. They said that Daya took the yes. notes. It was sort of presumed that Daya took the notes, but it wasn't ever verified. We have a reminiscence now. We have a reminiscence have. that says so because of that distinct possibility among many other reasons why we never thought. The main reason we didn't publish them is that Swami wouldn't let them be published without editing because they were too rough and uh, just didn't really represent his, his teachings well enough. Diamata. Diamata was the one who generally... But there was a certain point at which she didn't travel with him as much because she was running Mount Washington, but no one could think of anyone else who would have taken those notes. Okay. Now, fortunately, because of this book, the question is moot. Yeah. Okay. Any, anyone else? Okay. So now where we are 
is, let's see, where are we, is, we're on sutra number 235. And this is now, we're referring back to the yamas, and this is where uh, Patanjali states um, what, what the perfection of each of the yamas looks like. And he's referring back to stanza 230, when he listed out all of the yamas. Let's just go there so we'll know where we are. Um, we have to keep going back. 2.30. The yamas consist of non-harmfulness, a non-deceit, non-covetousness, continence, and non-attachment. And now each of these sutras um, goes through each one of these. It's, it's funny because at least in my own way, in my own living, because I've heard Swamiji teach this so many times, when I was reading it here, I had to remind myself that this is the original source. This Patanjali is not quoting, quoting Swami Kriyananda. <laughs> it's just funny how the subconscious mind works. I'll have to just, this is completely off the subject, but this is about the subconscious mind. The other day, after I left in the morning, um, ants invaded from the outside of our house into the kitchen, which, you know, they do every once in a while. So um, David um, is the great white hunter when it comes to insect invasions, and death to all intruders is the motto of our house. So I come home, and there's a big note on the floor that says, Ant Attack. So I have a nephew who lives in this area whose name is Adam. My, my name, of course, is Asha, so there's a lot of A's involved in our names, and the word A-N-T and the word A-U-N-T are, of course, are of course all the same. So for longer than you would think, I thought that ant attack had something to do with Adam and with me. <laughs> and I actually had to look at it um, for a long while. So much of communication is not as literal as we think it is. You know, there was the concept of ants, and then there were all these random A's floating around. So I thought it had to do with the Asha and the Adam, who all have all those A's and are related to the word ant. I stood there and stared at it and just tried to figure out why Adam would attack me, why I would attack him, why David would be writing me a note about it. <laughs> I this picture of all these little aunts, you know, aunts, aunts attacking their nephews left and right. <laughs> anyway, moving right along. <laughs> but that's what happened here. I just kept vaguely thinking, but this is Swami's teaching. Okay. In the presence of one who is firmly grounded in harmlessness, all hostilities cease. And one of the things that the, these, these sutras, the next five, actually the next ten are about, is how can you tell when you have accomplished this perfectly or not? Although I have to think um, Swamiji had pretty much mastered this, but there were a lot of hostilities still around him, so there is another reality. Master himself, there was a lot of hostility around him at times, and so was there around Jesus Christ. So um, I just realized I'm just undermined Patanjali. And in fact, there is something confusing here that Swami does not address. Um, cobras withdraw, criminals convert, the, the answer to threatened violence. But... But remember, the greater the opposing force, the greater must also be the magnetism with which you confront it. Hmm, interesting. I, I, the obvious answer to the obvious answer to the negative energy. I've already. I'm confusing my own teaching here. 
The obvious answer to the negative energy that great souls often engender is that it's not about their magnetism. It's not personal. It has nothing to do with them. It's karma that has to happen, um, that is happening in their vicinity, but has nothing to do with their magnetism. Because otherwise the entire world would be converted. And the entire world isn't converted. So there's another, some other law that's at work here. Um, But I do know that there are many instances in Swamiji's life because he was so uh, unintimidated by people's opinions of him. I remember we were in Nevada City once and at that time, in those early years, there was an enormous amount of outspoken criticism of Swamiji from our neighbors especially. It was a very strange time, the 70s and a little bit into the 80s. It was very tumultuous on the North San Juan Ridge where the Ananda community was starting. And a lot of our neighbors had gone there to just fall off the map and mostly um, use illegal drugs and just have a life that was completely off the radar. And they'd gone out, you know, to the boondocks to do this. And then Ananda comes, and we're so clean and bright to start with. And then we start advertising to the whole world and inviting the whole world to come out to the North San Juan Ridge. And they're trying to disappear, and we're trying to become globally known. And it was a real conflict of energies. And also, as Swamiji put it, um, they were people who liked to rebel and we were the only organized entity within reach. <laughs> so we just were the target for a lot of animosity. And he personally was the target because um, strong leaders often um, engender a response from people who uh, don't like to be told what to do and imagine that everybody's waiting to tell them what to do. Or sometimes it was people who actually understood that the lifestyle we had chosen was a more elevated lifestyle than the one they had chosen. And out of self-protection tried to pull us down. Or self-justification. People, sometimes people who'd started at Ananda but found the lifestyle more than they could conform to um, needed to justify their departure by tearing Ananda down. So we had a lot of stuff that would be very hard to imagine now, but it was very impressive. But there were a lot of well-known characters in the neighborhood who often took the opportunity whenever they had it to say something unkind about us. And Swami was in some local store, a coffee shop of some sort, and there was a man sitting over there. And um, when the group walked in, I wasn't with Swami. When the group walked in, they hesitated. Oh, we don't want to really sit here because so-and-so is sitting over there. Swami said, where? And then he just walked over and sat down in front of him. He just, you know, joined his table. I understand that you don't like me, he said. <laughs> he said, why would, I don't even know you. He said, why would you feel that way? It just, and the man said, his answer actually was that Swami was so straight, and he wasn't talking, at that time that word straight wasn't related to sexual orientation. It meant so orthodox and just so uh, not bohemian as they defined it. And uh, Swami just, you know, just chatted with him. But the man found it difficult to um, be as mean as he wanted to be. On another occasion, this man had had told a lot of, a different man had told a lot of people that the next time he saw Swamiji, he was really going to tell him off. He had a whole 
He might have had an SRF connection. Maybe we needed to scold him about, um, you know, not being a true disciple or whatever it was. And so uh, the next time there was a group and the man was there, Swami, of course, just made a point of sitting very near him and then just spent the whole evening just kind of looking expectantly at him. (laughs) He said the man was the soul of politeness and never said an unkind word the whole night. (laughs) I mean, it's easier in the absence to behave that way. Of course, certain lawyers and others managed to have quite enough antagonism towards Swami. But still, it's, it, it is a notable quality. And I'm sure all of you have experienced it. I mean, Rajasi was famous for being able to bring unity among his business associates just by sitting there and seeing how everybody was really trying to say the same thing and bring all the energy together. Yes? I was just listening to one of the Treasures Along the Path talks today, and I can't remember what it was, but... Um, it was, Swami said something about having founded Ananda about 15 years ago, so it was an old one. And he mentioned somebody, I think one of the neighbors on the ridge, calling him one day to um, and being very, very angry at him. And I think he said he was trying to get Swami to say things to bring out his supposed deviltry. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and Swami, it just wasn't working. He wasn't playing along. He was just being nice and polite and friendly, and the man was just getting angrier and angrier. But the man later on... I don't know if he outright apologized, but he admitted that he was very impressed that Swami did not, you know, get angry in response. And he said, I was putting so much anger onto you, and you just weren't taking it, I felt it land right back on me. And Swami said it was interesting that he was so sensitive enough to notice that, but that's (laughs) sort of what happened there and then he realized that he was getting it and it was just getting worse to be him and and luckily he recognized that and I guess stopped somehow um, as opposed to continuing on with it but yeah. I don't know there was a man named Joel Joel Goodkind was actually his last name who started out being quite outspokenly against us but the more he got to know Swami the more he just realized that it was misplaced on another occasion, there was a man who remained bitter towards Swami to, till the end. He was a, a staunch SRF person and also someone who washed out at Ananda. And always, as Swamiji said, some people would come to Ananda, find that the life didn't suit them, and they would just go on their way. And this is the way he put it. And others, he said, even though they were not able to live it successfully at Ananda, Ananda had such a strong impression upon them, made such a strong impression they could never put it behind them either. And those were the ones who had to constantly try to assert that Ananda was not what it appeared to be because otherwise why would they not have been able to... If it was in fact what it appeared to be, then they should have remained with it. And there was one such man who just... He was just a thorn in Swami's side forever, a local man, Nevada County. And uh, Swamiji just ran into him at uh, a concert that was happening in town. And again, Swami sees this man who's been talking against him and writing letters to the newspaper and testifying at the local events and you know, just a constant character. So Swami walks right up to him and uh, he actually said, I was thinking of inviting you over to tea. And the man said very sarcastically, what would we talk about? Attunement to the guru, like that. <laughs> and then Swami looked at him And he said, you know, 
If I were Satan himself, it just wouldn't be worth it to you to carry these negative feelings toward me. And the man then just sputtered and said, I can't help myself, I can't help myself, and wandered away. But Swami was just concerned for him. You know, this, this can't be good for you. I'm just living my life, and you're all caught up in this. But he was never, he was never intimidated. Or um, some, Occasionally he spoke sternly. Um, one time in the middle of a deposition, he took on Michael Flynn really strongly. He said, am I allowed to say it? He said, uh, I'm not sure, let me just think for a minute whether I'm allowed to or not. I'm not sure, so I'll just quote it anyway. But he, he accused Michael Flynn of being a very bad person, just straight up, you know, you, you are a very, very bad person. He said it just right into his eyes. And they sort of, there was this fight that went on for a moment and then Swami let it pass. But it's the only time he just felt somehow in that moment he needed to speak. Because, you know, the, a person who opposes someone spiritually with that much force, first of all, they're getting terrible karma for themselves, but also, it's also quite likely that there is an involvement, you know, that that, that, that kind of personal antagonism, and it was very, very personal, is often the result of thwarted energy from the past. That's what uh, Taramata said from the other side in a message that came to Swami through someone else, which Swami often presented as if it were true. She'd said, you know, you were my older brother in another lifetime and I followed you very devotedly and then you turned away from this path and I was so angry and disappointed in you and that I, I carried that energy into this lifetime and was still... Um, acting out my feeling of you being a, tra- a traitor. And she said, I realize now that, that that wasn't true, that I was remembering the past and that wasn't a, a reality. But usually when it becomes personal, there's something in it. Um, I, ro- I wrote an answer in the Ask Asha book. Um, the, a man asked me a question. What I love about those book, that book is that those are all real questions, real people, so the answers are very direct. This, the man asked, the question was abstract, how is karma transferred from life to life? And his theoretical question was, let's say a wife wants to marry the husband in the next lifetime, and let's say the husband doesn't want to marry that wife. <laughs> Will he have to marry her anyway merely because she wants to marry him? Let's just say theoretically. Okay, so theoretically. And uh, I answered him back just by running the whole cycle, like, So she is very attached to him. So if in the next lifetime, let's say that he doesn't have anything more to learn from being with her, or he's just going to take a break, and so she tries to attach herself to him, and he rejects her, and she becomes angry at her thwarted desire, how quickly will, will her love turn to hate? Because that's how love turns to hate. You really love someone, and you want them to behave as you want them to behave, and if they refuse, and if they reject you outright, do you just keep loving them? Or do you become angry and begin to turn against them? And this is how a lot of, of very antagonistic relationships grow out of very close relationships. When I had uh, all that difficulty with the woman at Ananda that I've referred to many times, Swamiji had often said to us, well, this antagonism is just the result of having been very close in the past. And then somehow another desire gets thwarted, which leads to anger, which leads to the end of discrimination. And 
Pretty soon there you are hating each other. So it's very complicated. Yes? Um, how does the yama of harmlessness relate to the fear of being harmed? Huh, that's a very good question. How does the yama of ahimsa, harmlessness, relate to the fear of being harmed? Well, the fear of being harmed would put you out of, harm, out of harmlessness with someone else. I think it would just be one of the ways, sure, because if you're afraid, if you're afraid the cobra is going to bite you, then your concern flips to your own well-being and you're no longer really loving the cobra. So it would just be one of fear, fear of, of hurt would be one of the ways in which Ahimsa would be interrupted. I mean, most people, like the story that's told about Sri Yukteswar and the cobra, most people, when seeing the cobra, their first thought is self-concern. And that self-concern, you know, identifying with the ego, identifying with the body, needing to protect the body, feeling that something else is other than I am, and that that something else can harm me. And then all of a sudden you're, you're, you have shifted out of the kind of universal embracing of all of reality that would be the definition of ahimsa. Does that make sense? Yeah, because that's one of the things you have to overcome is fear, of, fear for yourself. And it's not even that you're disciplining. See, you can discipline the fear for yourself and face something bravely or that fear can never arise because there's, not, there's no identification with the ego as a separate reality. Like the sadhu who goes out and the boys in the village all tease him and throw stones at him and he comes back to the ashram bleeding and bruised and just talks about how much fun we had. The boys were throwing stones and they were enjoying themselves so much and he didn't even realize that they were throwing the stones at him because he was just happy for their enjoyment and there was not enough of a self-identification to think, but they're throwing them at me. And when Swamiji's ability to speak to that man who was, you know, who just hates him for no reason... Um, Swamiji just never, uh, never took the anger. He never, no matter how much anger this man put on him and how much criticism, Swami just never, there was no self for it to affix to. So it wasn't, this is again, ahimsa you have to understand in perfect form, is not disciplining these feelings. It's that these feelings don't even arise because your consciousness has transcended ego identification to such an extent there is no ego to protect. And therefore, one can be entirely and only involved in the reality of others. I mean, that's how, that's how Swami lived it. There was just no ego to protect. I mean, I can be disciplined and kind, but it, it has to be an assumption of right attitude, which often I can do better than I can do it at other times. But, and sometimes it's spontaneous. But if it isn't spontaneous, I can pull myself into it. And Swamiji was quite different. But, you know, in the presence of a cobra, I would be thinking about death a lot more than I'd be thinking about the cobra. My expectation is that I would. There's a story told about Diamata once when some crazy person pinned her against the wall and put a knife at her throat. And uh, she just calmly stared into the eyes of the man until he just stopped, put the knife down. There's a story that Michael Hebel, Mike Hebel told, he was a detective in uh, San Francisco and he was pursuing a drug deal, uh, a, yeah, a drug dealer 
in some tenement hotel with very narrow, um, sort of twisted alleyways, and he came around this curve, and this completely drug-crazed guy had a shotgun right at his chest like this. And as Michael described it, the man's eyes were just spinning like crazy. And uh, Michael just, he was a yogi, as well as being a policeman, he said he just absolutely, everything ceased to exist for him except his breath. And he, he wasn't at all afraid. And he didn't have anything against the man. I don't know if it was the, it probably was, you know, the level of this. He just stared into this man's crazy eyes and just breathed, you know, just waiting to live or die without any relationship to either one. And finally, the man just put the shotgun down and he was able to, you know, disarm him and arrest him. He told that story uh, when Swami was giving the superconscious living courses in San Francisco. Michael was a, at that time a detective. He became some head of the departments up there. But in that moment, what do you do? You know, do you, be, do you become, does all your concern become for yourself? Do you become frantically upset with this other person? Of course, then all, there's all those dissonant waves. And, and the, of course, the violent person is going to receive all of that. And he'll receive lots of it. It doesn't mean that all violent people will stop, but there's another story that I read about a, a man who was being tortured in Vietnam, who'd been tortured for quite some time, and had absolutely reached the end of his strength. But what he did in the midst of one of those sessions, when he just reached the end of his strength, he just surrendered to God on a level that he didn't even know was possible, is how he put it. And the moment that happened, and it was, you know, a, 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 a transcendent spiritual experience, the man who was torturing him looked at him, put down whatever he was using against him, walked away, and he was never tortured again. It was just like in the presence of that, he just couldn't. Even though he was there, but the man's consciousness shifted, and then all of a sudden something completely other happened. There's another story which is really... It's similar. This is more about, about the power of the ohm. This is a story told, I think, in Tom Brown's book, The Tracker. And he talked about, he used to, uh, he was trained in the Native American ways, and he used to uh, play and, or be in this uh, wilderness area in, in New Jersey, I think it was, somewhere, some acres of wild land. And within that wild land, there were, there were dogs, feral dogs, People would dump their pets there and these packs of feral dogs would develop. And it was the one really dangerous thing there. And one time he was out in the woods by himself and he became, um, the, the wild dogs began to pursue him. And he ran up to the top of this hill, but the dogs were in hot pursuit and the, there was no way for him to get away. And it was very dangerous. It wasn't a small threat. And so he just sat down on a, a tree stump or a rock there, and he, he went into a spiritual state that he knew how to do as a Native American, which I, from the sound of it, it sounds like he went into the Om. And then he just sat there for some period of time, and then he came out of that. And when he came out of it, he was all alone. Now, he was a tracker, so he could read the animal um, messages, and he looked at the hill, and he saw... The, the wild dogs chasing right after him, arriving at the top of the hill, sniffing all around where he was sitting, trying to find him. 
finally realized that he couldn't be found. He was right there. He couldn't be found, and they went away. Even his scent disappeared when his consciousness went into that altered state. Isn't that an amazing story? I mean, talk about the power of the divine protection. But also, it's like the material world is not what it seems. We can shift the whole... I mean, when Jesus was being crucified, he said, even now legions of angels could rescue me. But it's not meant to be. Death is what has to happen here. So in our own lives, we have to just think in the most practical way, what is the best way to disarm disharmony? And there's so much, so much emphasis about you've got to speak your truth and set your boundaries and tell people what you think. Well, yeah, that's one way to go about it. And, and if you are not genuinely transcending those ego states but merely suppressing them, then it's a necessary stage to be able to have the courage to be honest about what you think and feel. But the higher stage is once you're able to be honest is to be able um, to, to transcend those realities. Um, let me just think where, what that talk was, where it was. If you give someone nothing to feed on, just like that man was saying, in fact, it does just build up in them and then it just sails past you and it has nothing to do with you. There was another thing I was going to say with that. Oh, I remember that was the story about when Shraddha, um, when Shraddha was dying, Mary Von Tobel, this young woman was dying, and Paula and uh, Bhakti Rinsler and I wanted to go visit her. And her father, Jake, did not want us to come. And he, on the phone, he told us not to come, that she didn't want us there. Jake was just being, he was just expressing his extreme anxiety because his daughter was dying, understandably. The three of us conferred and decided that when Sharada was able to run her own life, she didn't let Jake run it. And it was not likely that now that she was on her deathbed, she wanted Jake to be running her life. So we decided we would ignore him and went over and knocked on the door anyway. And he was, he was really, he really wanted to fight because he was so upset. He really wanted to give his anger to someone else because he didn't know what else to do with it. And if we had given him just, you know, the tiniest thing, I mean, he would have just exploded. There's no question that he would have exploded. And Paula just gave him nothing to fight against. And he, he said, you know, I told you not to come and... Jake just looked at him and said, Jake, we had to come. That's all she said. And then he repeated again with great fury, and she in exactly the same tone of voice, Jake, we just had to come. And they did it three times. And she never wavered. And, and you could see her whole heart was with him because she knew how miserable he was. Whatever he was throwing at us, it didn't have anything to do with us. He was just... And then the thing, he finally said, well, come on in, but don't stay long. And then we just ignored him and did what we wanted to do. But it was so obvious. And I would not have handled it that way. I would have put power against power. And thank God I had the sense to stand back. But how many times in our life is somebody throwing something negative at you and you think you have to meet it? Now, bear in mind... When Swamiji was being very fiercely attacked in the legal process, he never let negative energy go unanswered. That's an important point. He never let negative energy go unanswered. Whenever there was a strong negative force against us, he would always put out something very positive, 
either in direct response to it or in response to it without it being direct. He didn't just let negative energy just have its day. He always matched it with some, and in that case, he matched it with something external, almost always visible. And in the one at the end of that, when we didn't respond that way, we felt quite, when we here, we felt quite oppressed until we did stand up in several different ways and just counter negativity with positive energy. We didn't argue with the negativity, but we countered it with a strong positive force. Sometimes you, you do declare your own reality. That's the best way to express harmlessness, is that then you have to understand that because harmlessness is, is not, includes not allowing bullies to bully you. If a bully is bullying you, it's not harmlessness to just pretend that he's a nice guy. He's a bully. He needs to be stopped. And that's also harmlessness. But it's within yourself. You're stopping that which is wrong. You're standing up for truth, and you're stopping that which is wrong. But there's nothing in your heart that's trying to make it bad. Do you understand? Because it's a huge point. And uh, the recent letter that went out, had that story about that man who'd been instrumental in causing Anand enormous trouble through the lawsuits. He worked very hard on the other side. Tremendous stinker who'd been part of Anand at one point and then just behaved really, really badly. And he came to me and tried to shame me into making peace with him. Well, don't you think we all ought to just be friends now? And I said to him, have you changed? Have, you know, will you apologize for what you've done? Will you make reparations for the trouble that you've caused? Have you changed your point of view? And there was an absolute silence. And then someone said something like, uh, he said something like, uh, I regret that people were hurt. I said, well, that's just not the answer that I'm looking for. And I just would have none of it. And he was taking the moral high ground with me. I would have none of it. But I didn't really, I didn't have an opinion about him. I don't really care about him at all. But it was wrong, and I just wasn't going to take it. You know, Ahimsa is not just to let people do a wrong thing and then you just take it. You have to stand up. This is wrong. But then as soon as the, he went away, I don't have to spend a lot of time worrying about him. If I hadn't been, as we were talking last week, clean in my response to him, then I would have had to think it out differently. You know, what would be right here? Still shouldn't have accepted it, but it would have been a little dicier. You know, fortunately, I was clean. Any thoughts or questions about any of that? Yes, Marilyn. I guess what I'm actually saying is, no matter how good you are, there are times when you're going to have to fight. And that is the point that I'm trying to make. Do not think that ahimsa means cowardice or lack of defense of dharma. It means in your own heart, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing there. Yes. Um, I'm thinking of some response, a response that I try and give to people who, um, well, they might be commenting on this week at Ananda, you know, something in it. And, and at first I might feel anger, you know, uh-huh. toward, or, or wonder why they're paying attention to such a smi- small little detail. But then I know that that's not a good response in myself. And so I think about it a while. And then I... Um, I'm able to, 
and I thank them for paying attention to details, thank them for reading this week at Ananda, and um, then I feel better. And um, so I was, I was just thinking that's kind of a, a kind of a minor. But the battles are fought step by step. Every great victory is built on many minor struggles. Every time you have a wrong attitude, it undermines. You know, there's no there's no wrong attitude that's ever justified. It's just as simple as that. And so, when you have a wrong attitude, you have to do your best to bring it around. And if you can bring it around quickly, that's great. If it takes you a decade, it takes you a decade. No, it, they do. You have to be serious about this. I mean, I've had things I've struggled with, you know, most much of my life. Just the karma is too deep and too complicated. Certain things can get my goat, and they just do. You know, there have been change and notable progress, but if you're not in it for the long haul, don't be naive. Yeah. A piece of advice you gave, uh, I don't know, about three or four weeks ago about doing the opposite. When, right. when you don't like something, that really works. Yeah. It's, but, it's hard to start out, but then once I get going then I feel so much better because I, I stop being self-righteous and stop justifying and, um, and I feel like I'm doing something constructive and positive. That's exact. I mean, Patanjali states that. He just states it emphatically. Do the opposite. Do the opposite. When, the, when one attitude comes, do the opposite. And on one hand, I mean, I have to admit that when I just read that, I wanted to complicate it. But he said, when you feel one way, do the opposite. Just, just, and he's just telling you the essence, so we can just depend on the fact that that's really going to work. And it's really worth remembering. Swami would say, you know, if you want to hold, if you hold on, if you're, material, if you're attached to your material things, if you want to buy things for yourself, buy them for other people. I mean, do the opposite of what you want to do. Instead of having it, give it away. Instead of self-justifying, be grateful. All of that, it's, it, there's no doubt about it. Tremendous power. And you see, what's so interesting is a little bit of this practice goes a very long way. Just any sincere effort to really shift that is genuinely, you're really trying to repudiate wrong attitude, there's, a, there's wind of grace that comes along behind you because you're finally swimming with the tide and Divine Mother is really going to be there to help you. There is this last uh, sentence in this one, though, is very important. But remember, the greater the opposing force, the greater must also be the magnetism with which you confront it. And what, what I was sort of saying here about not being a coward, but we can't be presumptuous about our ahimsa. We can't think that, you know, if we just smile sweetly, then the cobra won't bite us or the bully won't shoot our heads off. If, that, if their power of negativity is greater than our power of ahimsa, then unless we're just being suicidal for reasons that we have chosen, um, it, you, ha- you have to be realistic, very realistic about it. And, and sometimes that's why. Sometimes it's just better to run and hide because you just don't have the power to confront it. And many people throw away an incarnation or because they think they should be able to or they have a naive idea about good and evil in the world. It's, it's when you're confronted with a very powerful force. I saw a little photograph. It was from like the late 30s or the early 40s, and it was just a little picture, and it was a firing squad. There were soldiers on this side with helmets on, and there were people blindfolded up against a, a mountainside on this side, 
and there was one man without a helmet who was in the, between the lines. And the caption said, and it, it named whoever the man was who was between the lines, that he was a German soldier who had been ordered to execute civilians. And when he said he wouldn't do it, he was told that if he refused, he would be executed. So he took off his helmet and put down his gun and walked over to the mountain and they shot him right at that moment. But it's, I was just, it's just a sort of a blurry picture. And I just thought, yeah, at a certain point, that's what you have to do. You just, you, you don't have the power to stop it, but you can choose not to participate even if it's at the cost of your life because you'll lose more by clinging and with wrong attitude. And I'm sure there were many more stories like that. I don't know how that one was known. Somebody in that situation must have survived and even took a picture of it in order to know. So you, you're still, you're, you're true to your, yourself. You're not a coward and you're true to your principles, but you don't have enough force to turn the whole thing around because that's just naive. You lock the door against the cobra or the tiger or the mad dog or whatever it is instead of going out thinking you can change it. Master could walk out and tame the tiger. And there was a story of, where was it? It was some, uh, it might have been David Mukherjee's book. I can't remember exactly. Someone was telling me about a man who was in the, in the Himalayas with a yogi. Was it Ram Gopal Musamdor? Seeing, seeing the yogi playing with tigers in the moonlight. What was the story? David Mukherjee's book. And, but the yogi said to him, I don't think you should come out. You know, I can do this, but I don't think you can do this. You know, it's just realistic. Your, your fearlessness, which is a huge part of it, you know, any tinge of fear would corrupt that right away. Yeah. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? All right. But this is also, let me just say one last thing about this. When Patanjali tells us this, um, this is the way to be absolutely safe and protected. Because we all have this fear of being hurt, either by creatures or by other people. And whether that hurt is that you hurt my feelings, you criticize my work, you told me that I was stupid, um, you don't believe in me, or that somebody's going to bash our head in with a steel pipe, uh, or, or, or tear us limb from limb, limb with their fangs. You know, we, we all have this profound fear of being destroyed. The ego is just afraid of being insulted. The physical body is afraid of dying. Um, the heart is afraid of being wounded. I mean, we have all these fears, and most of our lives is an elaborate project to protect those fears, isn't it? You know, of making ourselves look right and marry the right person and have the money and have the prestige and do the work and get people to not criticize us. It's just really think about how much time and energy is really devoted just to make sure that we don't get hurt. Or if, you know, if we're disappointed, we just withdraw. I didn't really want to get married anyway. You know, stupid, ungrateful kids. You know, whatever you want to say. You just figure out a way so that you're not going to have to be hurt anymore. But what he's telling us is that if you really never, ever, ever want to be hurt because all, all dissension will cease in your presence, it's by perfecting yourself 
in the attitude of harmlessness. So he's also making for us, he's really showing us the only way that we will ever really be at peace. Because we're always setting up these temporary structures, but a piece of us knows that we're still vulnerable. Because, in fact, we are vulnerable, and we know it. So that makes us just more tense and more self-protective and more irrational in the way we behave because we know we're not safe. It's, it's like... Um, the other part of that is... I, you, I've shared with you that time when I was so scared about going scuba diving, and I felt the Divine Mother wasn't comforting me, and she told me directly that the reason you're not being comforted is because when... A very specific person wanted you to comfort him. You didn't comfort him. So one, it was the karma coming back at me, but it was even more different than that, the way I felt it in my heart. It was that I had, cre- with my attitudes, I had created a universe in which mercy was not offered when mercy was needed. And so that was like the universe that I, w- that I was living in, So when I turned around and needed mercy, I hadn't created a universe in which mercy flowed. Do you understand what I mean? And so when we're in a universe where we're always protecting ourselves, and oftentimes we protect ourselves by what I call the preemptive strike, you know, whether the preemptive strike is actually words, or it's just, well, what does he know about this anyway? Who is he to talk to me like this? We, we do that sort of thing, don't we? Well, I don't really have to listen to him because after all... We're, and we're creating a universe in which protection is created by, well, you might call it, you know, the opposite of harmlessness, by, by diminishing others and not trusting them and all those different things. So that also creates a universe in which it comes back to us. And how can we really come to rest with the security that nothing can ever touch. The perfection of ahimsa, that's the only way. Yes? It's, it's very difficult to give other people mercy when you feel like you need it very desperately yourself. You got it. And I guess it's just doing those little tiny things so over maybe lifetimes you're more able to give mercy and then it comes back to you. But also the instrument is blessed by that which flows through it. The quality of your own, the quality of what you allow to flow through you becomes you. So if you're constantly offering kindness to others, that your own nature just becomes kind and your instinctive response of kindness, because this is the perfection of ahimsa, but a little practice of this inward religion begins to... A like attracts like. Your vibration really genuinely begins to shift and then you begin to attract something different to yourself. That's, that's why it's possible to do. That's why it's possible to do it, exactly. And that's mm-hmm. Master's phrase, the instrument is blessed by that which flows through it, meaning that you become what you express and that becomes your magnetism to express. Yeah, just the effort. The I mean, to assume the right attitude is better than... That's why, you, that's why Patanjali says, put on the opposite, even if you're just using an exercise of willpower. But what he's, what he's really telling us here is that there is no security 
outside of a pure heart. And everything, this is what he's really telling us is that everything that we long for will only be found when we ourselves purify ourselves and become this. And these are just, this is just one more way of, of boxing ourselves in and not waste time anymore trying to find another way out of this. Self-transformation, surrender to God, the true expression of divine qualities. That's what we're seeking and nothing else will satisfy us. Otherwise, we're always vulnerable. All right, let's take a little bit of a break. Do we have any questions that need to be answered? If not, we will go forward. Okay. And so now we're up to 236, and this one is about truthfulness. To one who is firmly established in truthfulness, his very word becomes binding on objective reality. Whatever he says must come to pass. To be truthful, he says, is to be in tune with things as they really are. And the truthfulness of which he's referring to, he calls it dynamic truthfulness, with the realization that truth itself is inspiring and more than just dull fact. Always try to attune your awareness to what, what is... What I- Try to attune your awareness of what is to its highest octave as an expression of the bliss of God. Uh, When you speak from that level of consciousness, your word will have power. Um, When I was reflecting on this, I was remembering a conversation that people are often, some people with a great deal of force, are always questioning this distinction between truth and fact. And he he says it so clearly here, which is um, the facts are just so incidental to the truth. Our, our belief that truth is defined by the details of material manifestation, it's like Swamiji so often, not, not you know, like randomly, let me also phrase it differently. Some people are not factual because they have an interior motive for not being factual. They're careless in their expression. They uh, are enthusiastic and they want to expand their enthusiasm. Um, They just, it makes a better story if I tell it like this. Uh, Whatever it might be, there's there's some part of it. They just want to make themselves look a little better and they don't even really, after a time, remember that they've shifted facts for things to be a little bit better. Now that kind of um, unwillingness to perceive what is because there is an ego-based bias against objective reality. That is a problem, okay? But when we are really trying to work with truthfulness on the level that Patanjali is talking about it, it simply serves us nothing to be able to say how many chairs there are in this room. I had a very funny, I mean, this is, this is one of these specific situations with Swamiji. At one point, um, Swamiji started saying that there were a thousand people living in Ananda communities worldwide. Um, and then someone went and actually counted how many people there were living in Ananda communities worldwide. The number was 713 or 
Maybe it was 506 or some, some number like that. And I was writing something. And just for fun, I decided I would put that number there. So I've said something about the communities. 517 people or 713 are living in the Ananda communities world, worldwide. And Swami phoned me and he said, this was his exact words, I've been saying there's a thousand people living in communities. Don't you think we ought to be consistent? <laughs> that, was just, that was just masterful. I mean, and in truth, um, you know, there are a thousand people. No, in a sense, because, it, I, I mean, many of you, I mean, I started really seriously thinking about it. Many of you who don't have a 240 Monroe address really are really living in our community. The, the, to, to def, even to define what it means to live in the community as to where you get your mail, I mean, it just, it doesn't, it's not exactly the definition of it. And even by that token, plus a thousand has a, has a magnetism to it. And when we had Swami's uh, talk over at uh, Foothill College, which turned out to be his last big public talk in America, we had uh, just under a thousand people, or over 900 or whatever it was, and there was a lot of back and forth. And I could just feel, you know, what we should say is we had nearly a thousand people. Maybe it was 876. But nearly a thousand was the spirit of what had happened. And, it, and nearly a thousand actually communicated much better than 879 people. Because that that's how it's received, that's how people feel it. Swamiji always said, whatever you say to people, they always lower it. Because I mean, they lower the vibration of whatever you say. Because they take the vibration into what they can receive. And if you don't, start at a high enough vibration, by the time they lower it, they're, they're very far from what you're actually telling them. It was another interesting way that he put it. This was some of the ways that he would describe Ananda. Sometimes it, it seemed to some of us to be a little bit overblown. But at one point he said, they're, they're going to take it and they're going to lower whatever we say to them. And if we don't start with enough energy and enough uh, magnetic grandness, they're only going to receive it halfway anyway. And if we start halfway, because that is a more factual way to describe it, what they'll get is going to be nothing. So he, his, his thinking about everything was always about moving energy toward expanded awareness. And the purpose of everything is to move individual energy and move the energy of the group toward expanded awareness. And that's, that's the truth that we should always be working with is the magnetism that we're creating. So we have to hear in the magnetism of what we're saying whether or not um, we're really telling the truth which is that everybody's going toward bliss and our job is to help them get there. And if we're not uh, really uh, sensitive we may have to be more careful, but to always insist that, no, this is the exact number and that's the wrong number is sometimes less truthful. And I know that's very subtle for people to understand and I know sometimes people really argue with that, but when you get into it, it's, it's so obvious. It's the only way I can think of to say it. And some people are very much 
I mean, they, they, they try to kill magnetism with facts. And that's, they're, they're still telling the truth, but they're, they're really not helping. When we were, the famous story of when we start, first started our community, and we're having this long all-day discussion in our temple there, and we were very aware of the fact, those of us who were really committed to making the community happen, that there were really only a handful of us who really understood what we were doing and were trying to make it happen, and that if we could make it happen, we could pull everyone else with us. And many people, being not schooled as we were in Swami's methods, kept wanting to um, have everybody raise their hands and say how many people were going to move into the community or sign up on the list, and, um, and people wanted to sit around and talk about all the things that they were worried about if they moved into community. And we were running the energy pretty well. And then one person expressed some anxiety about what was going on, you know, about this might happen and that might happen and I'm so afraid of this and that. And then the second person went on the same bandwagon. And when the third person started, I just, in the middle of their sentence, I said, oh, it's time for lunch, <laughs> just like that. I just cut it. That man never spoke to me for a long, long time because it was quite clear that he just started putting out his energy and we just watched. We watched the room just disappearing. We watched the capacity to, to start a community just disappearing before our very eyes. It was vaporizing. And so they were being factual, but they were not telling the truth because they were not doing anything that was going to... And they were fighting for the right to do that. They really wanted to do that. And that's why when I just, I just cut that man right in the middle of his sentence very rudely because I just couldn't let him go on. Just out of the question to let him go on. And uh, when we, when, then when we came back, we didn't have open discussion anymore. We controlled the discussion after that. We, we put up clipboards and asked for only certain kinds of input. And some people did not like that, but we knew exactly what we were doing. What they wanted to, the truth they wanted to tell was not really the truth. It was the truth that was going to take all the magnetism out of the room. And so Swamiji was very interesting in how he would respond to people's uh, contributions. And he came under criticism. He was never, he was never one who let people talk very much. I mean, it wasn't that he wasn't a good listener. He was actually he was a very good listener. But he, he, he never let people talk very much. Even when you were having open, he certainly never ran long open discussions. And he would just comment about others having the patience just to let everybody talk. And he just never had it. But even when he would be running a satsang and ask for questions or we'd be having a discussion, some people he would let finish their thoughts and others he would just cut off. And people got so... Sometimes they became very irate about him just not allowing people to speak. But if you paid attention... See, this, was, this is the way it always is when you're with someone who has, who's operating from another dimension. You can... I've written this in many places... I, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't an unintelligent person, but my concept of reality was like, you know, it was like a television screen of a certain size or like a movie frame. And I would see what was going on on the frame and my reality would start at, it start at one edge and end at the other. And crossing that field of vision, sometimes what he was doing did not conform to his own teachings as far as I could see. But I realized that he didn't, he, he saw where it started over here, and he saw where it was going over here. So the piece that I was looking at just simply wasn't the whole cause and effect. 
So he would see this energy coming into the screen. I would only see it after it got there. And he would stop people from talking if they were affirming their own negativity. And he would stop people from talking if their energy was, was taking everyone else down. And then it wasn't truth anymore. Even if it was fact for them, it wasn't truth anymore. And his concern was always to move things in a truthful direction. And it, it's, very, um, it's very dynamic to really begin to understand that. Because also this is, again, contrary to a lot of modern psychology and modern ideas about groups and things like that in which everything has to be brought forth. When we would have, uh, on the rare occasions when there was real disharmony or confusion among people or about, you know, what happened and something had to be corrected, Swamiji never let people sit around and talk about what happened in the past. Never. He would never let you... I said this, no, you said that. Well, then I said this, no, you said that. And this is what I intended and that's what you intended. He would just get us together and say, okay, now what are we going to do? What are we going to do to go forward? Because he never saw the magnetic benefit. I mean, others of us who don't have the power that he did have to use other ways of moving things forward because it takes a lot of power to be able to um, lift everyone's consciousness like that. But we always have to ask, not, you know, what is my idea, what is my feeling, what are my facts? What will be the effect of this if I say it? And you have to take yourself into account in that because sometimes you have to say it. Sometimes it simply needs to be said. Sometimes it's a truth that has to be spoken. Either because you have to say it. It's just necessary for you to say it or it has to be heard in the room. But you ask ourselves, you ask yourself, truth is always going to lead people toward the bliss of God. But that's why I'm saying sometimes hard truths have to be spoken. In Swami's book, um, In Divine Friendship with All Those Letters, one of the sections, there's many different sections, and one of them is called Strong Medicine. Because there was, you know, times in Swami's life when he had to write strong letters. He, there's one letter in there that he wrote to these people telling them they, they were pulling away from Ananda and he was just emphatic this is not going to work for you you have the opportunity to do some really something really meaningful here do not take this step of course they didn't listen and the predictable result happened but he just felt he had to say it because that was what was going to help them but always when you speak you ask how will this affect especially when we're in group discussions and things like that I remember we were just not too long ago in our living room, we were talking about the Finding Happiness movie and suddenly for some reason people started talking about the, um, the, we- the weaknesses and the limitations of that movie and all the things about it that might not be received properly and, you know, this or that. And it, sort of, I mean, it just sort of got, it got an energy of its own and at a certain point I just stopped the conversation and I said, where is this going to take us? Like, wh- wh- what will this accomplish? Whether it's the facts or not the facts, you know, this is the best public relations vehicle we've ever had. Let's, where are we going with this conversation? And a lot of times you have to just stop and ask yourself, where am I going with this conversation? Whether it's personal or in a group, where is this really going to take me? It, just, it might vent the pressure within my own system, 
but is that is this really going to take me where I want to go? Is this the best way to do that? And once you start really asking that question, that's why periodic times of silence are helpful. In our the early days of Ananda, when we were much more of an isolated ashram, people would take silence even while they were still working. And it was always really fun to have a day of silence in your normal job situation. Because you would realize how little needed your contribution really was. <laughs> that if you weren't there to run the show, what do you know? Other people just found a way to run it without you. And, and when you couldn't speak, you would often just wait and then somebody would just say what you were going to say. And it was, it was very, very informative to notice how, how, how different things are if you're just centered enough to observe a little bit. And then, of course, Patanjali makes this promise that your very word is binding on the universe. The parting of the Red Sea, the raising of the dead, whatever it might be. And there's those wonderful stories in Autobiography of a Yogi of Sri Yukteswar um, being healed by Lahiri Mahashaya and his dead friend being brought back to life because Lahiri had said that he would become well and it's, those are really quite impressive stories. Or even Master being able to finish his four-year college degree right there in Sarampur because the college was suddenly increased to four years. And Sri Yukteswar just saying, well, I, I guess it was whatever he said, but the universe had to comply because it had been declared with that kind of power that it would be so. Yeah. And it is, just, it is extremely important to be very careful that you keep your word and that you, that you not just fritter away your magnetism by making promises that you're not going to keep. Swami, in India these days, um, it's become very common for people to just say they're going to do something and not do it. And they, and they always use the phrase, definitely, definitely I will be there, which always means, no, I'm not planning to come at all, I'm just talking to you. And I've heard Swamiji on many occasions just excoriate the people around him. You know, don't you understand what you're doing? You're just completely undermining your magnetism. And if, if we're at all frustrated with our ability to manifest what we want or to have people take us seriously or whatever it might be, listen to yourself. And listen to, listen to the way you describe things. I, when I used to write letters for Swamiji, he was very exact about the way we expressed ourselves. And when I would, when I would compose letters that he would have to, you know, over his signature, you know, it had to be, it had to be very exact. And I wrote this in uh, my book about him, but someone sent us, sent us some poetry, and I said, thank you for sending your beautiful poetry. And Swami looked at me, he said, it wasn't beautiful. He said, what will you say when someone does send us beautiful poetry? And it was so simple. He was right. And, and because of that, you'd say to someone, thank you for your beautiful poetry. There's no magnetism in that. And so there's no real exchange of consciousness because there's no magnetism. You just pasted a word on there because that was the word. And he said, it, it was okay, he said. So you still have to say something nice. So I don't know what exactly what I said, but it was something like, I'm so happy to see you doing this kind of creative work. Thank you for sharing it with me. You know, it's, it's perfectly true. 
but you haven't in any way compromised your true perceptions of things. It takes more creativity, it takes more work. I have, a, as a, a wordsmith, I always object to whenever we're talking about Ananda things to it was beautiful, it was inspiring, it was joyful. I just like sometimes just want to kill those words from the Ananda vocabulary. You know, what was it really? You know, what, what really happened on those occasions? And sometimes you, the obvious word is the right word. But you really want to express yourself, whether written or verbal, in a way that is exactly what you mean. Not more, not less. And never be lazy and just try to sort of throw words out. Because it's just, you have no magnetism. You're just draining your magnetism out. And if you're not going to do it, don't say you're going to. And the opposite of that is Swami said, if you say you're going to do it, just just do it, regardless. And he used the example, if he said he was going to town to get a newspaper, somebody brings him a newspaper, he still goes to town. Because he said he would. And oftentimes, you know, I found myself, it it took me a while to understand this, because I used to use words very carelessly. And I would sometimes do what I said I was going to do, and I'd sometimes just do something else. But there was just this never-ending lack of focus in my life. Just this, I was always scattered until I really just, you know, started disciplining my commitments and whatever they were, just keeping them. Yes? If you say you're going to do something, like going to get a newspaper or whatever it is, that it then becomes impossible for you to do, even right. if you would like to, is there a remedial action uh, <laughs> to, to fix this situation? I think that you have to use common sense in this teaching. And so if it really is impossible to do... I mean, I volunteered to do something at Ananda Village and I just had to write an email and say, I've said yes to too many things and I'm just spread too thin, I can't do this. So I don't feel that you need to be irrational if you've made, a, if you've made an error, but I think then you just need to state that you've made an error and that you need to correct it. Or if circumstances prevent you, then circumstances have prevented you. I know Swami sees sometimes when circumstances would prevent him and allow him to extricate himself from something he would like to be extricated from, he he would allow those circumstances to run. I mean, he would cooperate with those circumstances, if that makes sense. If we're, if we're talking about being in tune with truth, then that's just another aspect of truth. Yes. I did commit myself to too many things yes. or it did become impossible and I'm telling truth again and this is just the new situation. Right. But it's, you, you, well, when Swamiji um, wasn't allowed to get an Indian visa for a decade because he'd been blackballed by SRF with the Indian government, I think there was a stamp in his passport. So... Um, he gave his passport to a child and he gave that child a pair of scissors. <laughs> and then he was able to say that his passport had been destroyed by a child. <laughs> and it was the truth, his passport had been destroyed by a child. <laughs> of course, he didn't say that he planned it and instigated it, but in fact it had happened and there you have it. You know, but he was very careful. He could have just said that. But instead, he gave the child the passport and the scissors and let them cut it up. And then he could honestly and truly say it had been cut up by a child with scissors. <laughs> so I mean, he was attentive like that to making it, to making it work. <laughs> that has 
Yeah, overtones of making the facts fit the truth instead of vice versa. Well, he felt, he, I mean, Master uh, did at least one fake marriage between a monk and a nun in Mount Washington to keep a man out of the army, I think it was, or, or no, to keep a, a person from being deported, to keep someone in the country. And I, he might have done something to keep someone out of the army, but he definitely did a fake marriage to keep someone out of the, uh, from being deported. And he just felt when a higher dharma comes in front of a lower dharma, it ceases to be a dharma. So just because someone else thinks it's a rule doesn't mean it's a rule. I mean, Swami brought 30 Odierna paintings back from Italy in a variety of different suitcases, and I don't think any of them appeared on the customs form. I was... Uh, I, I knew, these are, there are certain things that you just have to figure out for yourself. I remember going through customs once. And just before I was standing in front of the woman, I turned to Dave and said in a perfectly audible voice, it's so much more relaxing when the form is really honest. <laughs> when you've told the truth on the form. That's what I said. It's much more relaxing when you've told the truth on the form. And of course, I had told the truth on the form this time. The woman, the woman just looks to me and says, well, I'm glad to hear that. And it was just like, the only excuse I had was jet lag, but, you know, there are moments. I, I'm, not, I'm not always, I have not always been truthful in the customs forums. Various things, I don't know what the real, I don't feel like all rules have to be followed, I'm not sure. But one, one doesn't like to do that. It's much more relaxing when you're telling the truth on the customs form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, any other thoughts or questions? Be very, very attentive to this. I'm sort of trying to figure out, I guess I've said it strongly enough, when you start really paying attention and really speaking the highest truth and not promising what you don't intend to do and only promising what you do intend to do, there's a huge shift in your inner energy. It really does, when you just start noticing your mouth and noticing what you're, what you're doing. It's very, very important spiritually. Okay. All right, great souls. We're done. So we went through 235 and 236. We're not speeding through the book, but we're, we're more than halfway. <laughs>